got your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn to the fourth chapter of Amos, the fourth chapter of the book of Amos. We've been in a study of this minor prophet over the past few weeks, and we come now to this fourth chapter. And the central theme of the book of Amos is divine justice, the righteousness of God applied to human relationships, society, what God wanted for society there in the lives of his covenant people, the covenant nation of Israel. In Amos' day, Israel had become known for its economic prosperity. Also, there was a thin veneer of religious hypocrisy, all the while morality was in a free fall. And so the call of God comes to the prophet Amos, who was living in the southern kingdom of Judah, And God called him to go into the northern kingdom and really cry out against the injustice, the immorality, uh, the way that God's people were just going through motions and uh, mistreating their fellow man. And so perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, Amos uh, specifically deals with the importance of how we treat one another as the people of God. And so through the prophet, the warning comes to God's people that they were really on the brink of disaster. And their only hope was repentance and revival. And that's really the theme that uh, we saw in chapter 3 as the prophet warns God's people and it really encourages them to listen. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken. That's how chapter 3 begins You'll notice it's the same way that chapter 4 begins, that same phrase, hear this word, is mentioned. It's also used in the fifth chapter, verse 1, hear this word. It's important how we hear the word of God as it's spoken into our lives. If we're not careful, we can ignore the warnings, warnings that really are overtures of God's grace and his mercy to spare us from disaster. So the warning and the message really continues from chapter 3 on into chapter 4. And so let's read beginning with verse 1, Amos chapter 4. The prophet says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who were on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. In other words, they love their religious activity. Uh, they were going through religious routine and motions. All the while there was unconfessed sin, unrepentant idolatry in their life. So look at what the Lord says in verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now that's not a compliment, okay? We think cleanness of teeth. We say, oh, the Lord sent them to the dentist. That's not what he's saying there. it's, It's a descriptive way of referring to famine. 
God is saying, I sent famine, lack of bread in all of your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain. The field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses and made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrow some of you when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God is just simply saying, multiple different times, in multiple different ways, I tried to get the attention of my people. Through crisis and catastrophe, through difficulty and hard times, these were overtures of God's grace, in his dealings with his covenant people that he might get their attention so that they might return to the Lord. And yet five times here, God says, you did not return to me. Verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I want to speak from this subject this morning, entering the danger zone. Through the prophet Amos, God is warning his people of how they had entered into a very dangerous situation. You know, back in February, <clears throat> Anita and I spent a little bit of time at Niagara Falls. It was bitterly cold. It was snowing. There were chunks of ice floating down the Niagara River. And yet, even though it was so cold, the falls were just spectacular to behold. Many of you have been there. You've made that trip. You've seen it firsthand. You can't help but be overwhelmed by just the sheer sight and sound of 3 million gallons of water per second that pass over the crest of the most powerful waterfalls on the planet. Well, I read somewhere that along the Niagara River, as you're approaching the falls, there are two signs that are extremely important, especially for boaters. The first sign is around three and a half miles upstream from the falls, uh, and really this is a series of signs warning those who are boaters traveling down the river that they've entered the danger zone. In fact, these are buoys that are out. Uh, the Niagara River is very wide, and so there's a series of these buoys that are marked with the red diamond, which is, uh, every boater knows that that is just the most serious um, language that's used. Imminent danger is just beyond the horizon. Uh, a person's in extreme danger if their boat motor experiences any loss of power, and they're in that danger zone. 
The other sign is a bit further up, beyond the danger zone, and it's the point of no return. Because once you cross that point, no possibility of rescue exists. Not even a high, powerful boat motor can save you. Because from that point forward, the river current is so strong that certain death is inevitable. On July 9th, 1960, there was a man by the name of James Honeycutt who took two children of a family friend for what was supposed to be a quick ride down the Niagara River in his 12-foot aluminum skiff. Now, his little boat was powered by a a 7.5-horsepower outboard motor. Honeycutt and uh, the two children, one was 17, the other was her younger brother. He was seven. They put on their life preservers, and they set out down the Niagara. Well, after a while, he had cut his engine off, and they were drifting with the current when he decided it was time to fire the engine back up and, and get going back upstream. Well, the thing is, he had drifted into the danger zone, and even though he had turned around, that little boat motor was powerless against the current at that point where he was on the river. Even at full throttle, the boat continued to creep backward. Well, the situation went from bad to worse. The propeller was ripped completely from the motor by the strength of the current. And so Honeycutt grabbed two oars that were there in the boat. He began to row as hard as he could toward land, but it was all useless. As they entered the rapids just above the falls, the boat struck a rock in the river It capsized, and it threw all three into the turbulent waters. The teenage girl, her name was Deanne Woodward, she clung to the boat, and when the torrent became too much, she found herself not far away from a landmass in the middle of the river that separated the American side of the falls from the Canadian side of the falls, known as Horseshoe Falls. And she was dangerously uh, approaching the crest of the falls. There was a truck driver who was there at Terrapin Point who was uh, observing the falls. He noticed the situation. He saw Deanne Woodward coming down the river, and with moments, just seconds to spare, he, he crossed the barrier, reached out his hand, and he grabbed her hand, and, and, and within 15 feet, she was within 15 feet of going over the falls. Her younger brother was too small for someone to catch. Uh, He went over Horseshoe Falls, but miraculously was discovered at the bottom still wearing his life preserver with only a few scratches and bruises. In fact, to this day, he's the only person, Roger is his name, the only person who's ever gone over Niagara Falls unintentionally and survived. It's called the Niagara Miracle. There would be no miracle for James Honeycutt, however. His body was found a few days later when it surfaced more than a mile downriver. Now I'm telling you that to just simply say this. James Honeycutt ignored the warnings, drifted into the danger zone, and passed the point of no return. And here in Amos chapter 4, the prophet is warning the nation of Israel that they were in the same boat. They had been drifting down the river of ease and idolatry. They had entered the danger zone, and they were dangerously close to the point of no return. They did not listen to the warnings of their prophets, and disaster loomed on the horizon. And so the issue that's being addressed here in Amos 4 is whether or not the people of God are going to make the most of an opportunity to repent and return to the Lord 
or continued down a path leading to their demise? And I think that that's a very relevant question for all of us to ask ourselves this morning. So from this chapter, I want to show you a few ways in which God's people had entered the danger zone. Number one, notice with me how they had valued the wrong things. You'll notice beginning in verse number one, Amos is rebuking the people of God because they they had adopted the wrong value system in life. Again, it had been a time of economic prosperity in the nation. Relative quietness at their borders fostered this false sense of security. And oftentimes, that's the way it is in the lives of both individuals and nations. I read somewhere that hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak, weak men, and weak men create hard times. And it's a vicious cycle that has happened over and over again throughout human history. And the irony of history reveals that often the more we have, the more often we take for granted. Prosperity can lead to a point of complacency. And when a person becomes spiritually complacent, oftentimes they adopt the wrong value system in life. That's what's happening with Israel here in Amos chapter 4. If you go back to chapter 3, we saw how they had forgotten all that God had done on their behalf. They had despised his grace. By his own mercy and grace, God brought them up out of their bondage in Egypt. By his power and outstretched arm, God brought them into the land of their inheritance. Uh, God had gotten them through difficult situations and circumstances, and yet now things were quiet, times were good, bank accounts were full, God's people were complacent, and that complacency led to a wrong set of values. What had they been valuing? Well, idols. They made idols out of their wealth, out of possessions, uh, all of that. And so really in verse number one, the prophet is crying out against the idolatry that had manifested itself in the lives of God's people. Uh, He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, I need to be quick to point out that the language being used here would have been understood differently in the culture of Amos' day than our day. You'll notice Amos is speaking directly to the wives of the leaders, the upper crust of Israelite society here, and he's referring to them as the cows of Bashan. I'm pretty sure he didn't read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But the language that's being used, uh, it would have been understood in Amos' day Uh, And in many ways, it just doesn't necessarily make sense to us. Same kind of thing happens in the Song of Solomon, where Solomon is describing his lover in chapter 4 and says to her, your hair is like a flock of goats. I guarantee you that one's not going to be on a Hallmark Valentine card anytime soon. But it's culturally appropriate language. Bashan was a very fertile area at the base of Mount Hermon, east of the Jordan River. And in Amos' day, it was known for its lush, rich pastures and well-fed livestock. So the imagery then that's being conveyed, being driven home here, is how the upper crust of Israelite society had become so pampered, pompous, proud, and arrogant, so much so that they thought they were above everyone else and they mistreated, even crushed the poor. They were mistreating others because they were living with the wrong set of values. 
They idolized power. Notice how they're being called out for how they oppressed the poor. They crushed the needy. That pattern had been handed down decades before through the wicked example of Ahab and Jezebel. You remember how Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard for himself? Wanted to purchase it from Naboth, and Naboth says to the king, says, no, how can I sell the inheritance of my, my ancestors? How can I do such a wicked thing? That's not how God wanted uh, society to function in Israel. So Ahab goes home, and he pouts. Jezebel comes along, and she says, are you not the king? And so what she does then, she has all of these official documents drawn up and basically has Naboth murdered so that she and her husband can seize his land for themselves. That's the pattern that had been handed down to God's people in the northern kingdom. And that's what the prophet Amos is calling these people out for here in verse number one. So they made an idol out of power. They made an idol out of their possessions You go back up to chapter 3 and notice the references to summer houses, winter houses, houses of ivory. The idea is that they had become materialistic in their mindset, motivated by a sense of greed and lust for more, never content with what they had been given. One person expressed it this way, the cows of Bashan never stop chewing the cud of luxury. They've always got to have more and more, and they're prepared to trample over anyone who stands in the way of what they want. So they are being called out for how they made an idol of power, possessions, but then notice pleasure, leisure. Uh, Verse 1 says, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The idea is that God's people were living only for the gratification of the flesh, thinking only of physical comfort, uh, ignoring the soul, neglecting the things of God. And it's all a word picture of how God's people had been motivated by self-interests. And so they become self-indulgent, and their self-indulgence and their idolatry leads them to exploit the most vulnerable of society, and there's a complete breakdown of the social order that's brought on by Israel's idolatry. And this is what Amos is calling God's people out for. And then notice how their idolatry is going to lead to captivity eventually. In verse number two, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, which is the most it's an expression that just emphasizes just the sheer weight of their sin and their magnitude when it's seen against the light of God's holiness. In other words, the, the lifestyle of the people of God became so unlike the character of the God that they claimed to know and worship. They were using the name of God for themselves, but they were not giving the world a picture of the character of the God that they claim to know and serve. They said one thing with their mouths, but entirely different thing with their bank accounts and their lifestyles and their habits. And so cruelty and mistreatment of their fellow man, this is the direct result of the avarice and the greed that controlled their mind and their heart. Now folks, listen to me. What we love is always going to show up in the way that we live. That's just a principle from God's own word. What you truly love, what the heart loves, the mind, the life, the hands will pursue. God's people said they loved God, they served God, but the way they were living their life proved that that was not the truth. 
And by the way, there are multiple warnings in the New Testament for the people of God uh, to, to, to evaluate the way they're living their life. What's your value system? Are you truly valuing the right things in life? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, command those who are rich in this present age to not be haughty, neither trust in uncertain riches. Uncertain riches. Why are they uncertain? They're here one minute, they're gone the next. All it takes is a few bad decisions in an economy where inflation gets so high that all that you put aside in your 401k and your retirement plan, it can be evaporated overnight. The collapse of the Soviet Union, you know that people were actually taking wheelbarrow load of rubles just to buy a loaf of bread. The uncertainty of riches. Paul says, don't put your confidence in wealth. Don't put your confidence in money. But put your confidence in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. So it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have possessions. The issue is, does my wealth, does my possessions, do they own me? Because there are a lot of people who are in the grip of idolatry when it comes to stuff, materialism. Got to keep up with everybody else in society. Man, someone has this, well, I've got to run out and get that. God's people in the north had been doing this, and, 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 and Amos is calling them out against it and saying, it's an idol in your life. You're living with the wrong set of values, and you're in the danger zone. Now, notice the second reason that they're in the danger zone. Not only had they valued the wrong things, but they were playing a religious game. God's people had played a religious game. You see this in verses 4 and 5. Religion had been reduced to nothing more than ritualism in their day. Instead of genuine faith characterized by repentance and obedience to God, they were playing this game of religious hypocrisy. There was a thin veneer of religious whitewash that coated all of their sin and made it so hypocritical. So you'll notice the reference there to Bethel in verse number four. And in referring to Bethel, God is singling out Israel's religious farce. Bethel uh, held religious significance for God's people. Generations before, Bethel had been the place where God met Jacob and changed his name to Israel. 1 Kings chapter 12 says that Bethel was where the northern kingdom's first king developed his own state religion and had two golden calves built, had a sanctuary constructed. He said Jerusalem was too far for God's people to go worship. Just go to Bethel and worship these gods. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so he came up with his own religious system in the name of the God of Israel, and it was a snare for God's people. So don't get your idea, don't have this idea that God's people in Amos' day in the north were irreligious. No, they're very religious. The trappings of religion were very much a part of their lives. They loved to go to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal where they multiplied their transgressions. God says, bring your sacrifice every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. 
I know that sacrifices were to be offered with unleavened bread rather than leaven. Leaven is a picture of sin. So the prophet is using sarcastic language here and he's just pointing out the hypocrisy of God's people. You know, he's saying, listen, y'all were faithful to go to Sunday school, you're faithful to go to worship, you're faithful to put something in the offering plate. Back before COVID when we passed that thing around, y'all remember what that was like? But it's all just a thin veneer of religion because your heart is full of corruption. That's what God's saying here. There's unconfessed sin in your life. It's all a sham. God is looking into your heart. Even though they were flocking to their services and their rituals and bringing their offerings, God is saying, keep on going because I'm not noticing it. It doesn't mean anything to me at all. It's all hypocritical. So if we were to apply this to us, Amos might say this, go ahead, get up, Keep having your daily daily devotions every morning. Go down your shopping list of prayer requests. Stay involved in all those religious activities that you're involved in. Flock to your conventions. Give your tithes. But it's all a waste of time. God says, because I'm looking into your heart and I see how you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Now, folks, it's easy for us to just go through religious motions all the while our hearts be a million miles away from the Lord. You say, well, what are you saying? Is all that not a good thing to do? No, listen, you ought to be involved. You ought to have morning devotions. You ought to give. You ought to serve. You ought to be here every opportunity that you have. But it's a waste of time if it's nothing more than an outward show. If it's nothing more than cosmetic, if it's nothing more than superficial activity in your life, it's a waste of time. God is looking upon the heart. All of our service and all that we give and all that we do ought to flow from a life that's been redeemed by the grace of God. A heart that's caught up in love with the God that gave his only begotten son for us. Offered in faith, in sincerity. Not hypocrisy. God is looking upon the heart. So God is saying, listen, I'm tired of the religious games, Israel. It's not sacrifice that he's looking for as much as it is an obedient heart. As a God of righteousness, a God of justice, he's not interested in religious sacrifice. He wants obedient hearts. Lives that have been brought into conformity with his will. The prophet Samuel told King Saul that to obey is better than sacrifice. And so somewhere along the way, God's people had adopted the wrong value system. They began playing the part of the religious hypocrite, religious games, that's all that they had settled for. And because of that, they were in the danger zone, according to what God says through the prophet. Now, notice a third reason that they were in the danger zone. They refused to humble themselves. Despite multiple warnings, despite God being faithful to send word to his wayward people through prophet after prophet, God's people had refused to humble themselves. I mean, notice the language there in verses 6 through 11. Look at what God says that he did in order to get his people's attention. I gave you cleanness of teeth. In other words, God is saying deprivation. 
I'll let you experience hunger. He says, I withheld rain, drought, verses seven and eight. All of this this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, what God said would happen were his covenant people disobedient. They would have God's blessing on their lives in the land as they were faithful to live up to the terms of the covenant that God established. But should they turn their backs on him and worship and serve idols and become like the nations that surrounded them, God said you're going to experience difficulty in the land. So drought, deprivation, disease, verse 9, God says I struck you with blight, with mildew. I sent among you a pestilence. Disease, sickness, all of the hard times, God is saying I allowed you to experience the pain and the hardship brought on by hard times so as to move you to prayer and repentance, to bring you to a place of brokenness, to bring you to a place of dependence upon me and my grace. I allowed you to experience defeat from your enemies, verse 10. Natural disaster, national disaster, verse 11. And yet, notice that phrase that's repeated over and over again. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I brought all of this into your life. I allowed you to experience pain and hardship, trial, one right after the other, and this was an overture of my grace in your life, but you didn't want to listen to it. Folks, I want to tell you something. I don't want to be so obstinate and hard-headed in my thinking that the circumstances of life are not instrumental to bring me to a place of realizing just how small I am and how big my God is. Are you all listening to me? God works this way in our life every single day. Things happen, but they don't just happen. There is not a single thing in my life that has not, first of all, been filtered through the hand of a gracious, omnipotent God. And whatever it be, whether it be pain, whether it be hardship, whether it be blessing, whether it be prosperity, God's allowed me to experience it because he wants to convey some type of lesson. He's always using the circumstances of my life to conform me to the image of his own son. God's saying, I've done all of this, but y'all just wouldn't pay attention. You wouldn't listen. You would not return. Now, I'll be honest. I can't help but wonder what it will take for God to truly have our attention. If you're coasting through life and you've got the wrong value system and you're playing a religious game, just how bad does it going to have to get in your life for you to hit your knees in a place of brokenness and surrender before the God of heaven? The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, whenever the scripture calls a sheep, you know that ain't a compliment, right? Because sheep tend to go their own way. Sheep have to have a shepherd. We become stubborn, we become obstinate, unthankful. But God is gracious to bring us back to himself. He's always gracious to do that. So they'd entered the danger zone. They'd had a wrong value system. They were playing a religious game. They refused to humble themselves. Then notice last, one last reason. Ultimately, they would experience the Lord's discipline. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus will I do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Now think about it. God had sent crisis, 
conflicts that were designed to bring them to repentance, but they wouldn't listen. And having failed to heed the warnings, there was only judgment that awaited. And God says, prepare to meet your God. This is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. No more religious games. No more mistreatment of your fellow man. God is not to be trifled with. Prepare to meet your God. You realize that there's coming a time, yet future, when all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body according to whether that be good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone's work which he's built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. You know when the Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ, these, these three passages, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, these are three texts that apply to believers. There are two judgments referred to in Scripture. The Bema judgment, which is what those passages describe, that's for believers. But then there's the great white throne judgment, the final judgment that will be for unbelievers, those who die in their sins. They stand before the judge. They have no advocate to plead their case. On that day, they'll have no defense attorney to plead their case. But they'll receive final sentencing at the great white throne judgment. I'm glad that that final sentence has been carried out already as a believer. Jesus Christ paid the price for me. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to him I owe. But let me tell you, there's going to come a time when I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. And on that day, I'm going to be evaluated on the basis of what I did with what God gave me. The resources that he gave me, the time that he gave me, the relationships that I had in my time on earth, all of that's going to be evaluated. Have I leveraged my resources for the sake of the kingdom? Did I use what I had and what I'd been trusted with in order to be a blessing to someone else, in order to help meet need and alleviate needs in the lives of someone else, to advance God's global gospel agenda? Did I give to that end? Did I serve to that end? I was always critical of everything that went on in my church. All that, listen folks, we're going to stand before the judge one day. And here's what you'll tell him one day. You know what? I didn't go to Sunday school because I just didn't like that teacher. Reckon, you're gonna, reckon that's going to really hold water when you look the Lord of glory in the eyes? Or I acted the way that I acted because I didn't like what they always... Let me tell you something right now. That's not going to hold water either when you stand before the Lord at the Bema. Because it's going to be you and King Jesus on that day. And with piercing eyes, he's going to look through you and into you. And he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Wow. Y'all all right? That's a sobering reality, isn't it? Causes me to want to just...
live my life a little bit differently. I want to evaluate the things that I've truly been valuing in life. How's your value system? Are you going through motions religiously or, or, or is worship something that's just born from a redeemed heart and man, it's the grace of God and the goodness of God and it's the love of God and the depth of gratitude for what Christ did for you on the cross. The fact that he's the living Lord. Are you moved by that? Obedience is very much a part of the Christian life. We don't obey in order to be accepted, but let me tell you, we obey because we've been accepted. Amen. Grace is a much greater motivator. So God's people had drifted into the danger zone. They were dangerously close to the point of no return. What about us? It's an appropriate question. You know something, I'm grateful for a Savior. And the cascading, pounding waterfall of divine judgment fell upon Jesus at the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That blows my mind. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Prepare to meet your God, Israel. Isn't that a powerful incentive for life? That this God is coming in power. He's not some distant deity who's wound the universe up and is just casually, nonchalantly watching it spin into oblivion. No, he's a God who's actively involved in every detail in his creation. There's not one sparrow that falls from the sky to the ground that he's not aware of. There's not a single circumstance that comes into my life or your life that he's not aware of, that he's not allowed for some reason or another, maybe known only to him. But he's the God who treads the heights of the earth, the same God who inhabits eternity. And he knows you, and he knows me. When he looks into the depth of my heart, what is it that he sees? Prepare, prepare to meet your God. I think that's a powerful reminder for all of us. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You know, none of the things that we tend to look to for comfort and security will ultimately be there in the end. God's people thought that their wealth and prosperity, all of that was what they looked to for security, none of that would be there in the end. Their religious activity, they said the prayers, they did everything the right way, and yet even that, it's not what God's looking for. What is it that he's looking for? Listen, he's looking for a heart that's broken, contrite before him, and trust in the one and only sacrifice for sin. And that's the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless substitute who is our Savior. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. And he was crushed for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Amos says, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? It's non-negotiable. The only thing that matters is whether or not you'll meet him now as Savior or later as judge. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, I plead with you, I urge you to turn from sin and from self-reliance and from your own good works or religion and place your faith and your trust only in Jesus who died for you and who rose again from the dead. And confess him as your Savior and Lord. And he'll change you and save you, and it's wonderful. Lord, thank you for life. Thank you for salvation. Thank you, O oh God, just for the reality check that your word serves in our lives. God, we don't want to drift into the danger zone and become so comfortable and complacent that we end up valuing the wrong things in life and playing a religious game Refusing to humble ourselves before you. You're a God who means business. You're far more gracious, Lord, than we could ever possibly imagine. And yet you're far more holy than we could ever possibly fathom in our minds. Do your work in our lives, Lord. Those under the sound of my voice who need to be saved, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you save them. Conform us, make us, mold us, shape us into the image of your son Jesus. Use every circumstance to do it, Lord. It'll all be worth it. It'll all be worth it when we look upon you with new eyes one of these days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.